Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and this episode is Q&A number 126. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They create electrolyte supplements that you can match to how much sodium you lose in your sweat. So to give you an example, somebody that loses uh, just a small amount of sodium, a non-salty sweater, might only lose a few hundred milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, whereas somebody that is a very salty sweater might lose upwards of 2,000 milligrams per liter of sweat. That gets exacerbated in, for example, hot weather conditions when you, in addition to having that high uh, salt concentration in your sweat, you are also actually sweating a lot in absolute terms compared to in temperate conditions. So the sweat rate also needs to be taken into account. And while the sweat rate varies depending on intensity and weather conditions, the sweat sodium concentration level for any given individual tends to be fairly constant and not change much at all. Uh, precision hydration helps you get uh, a good validated ballpark estimate for your sweat sodium concentration level and you can then use that to create your sodium and hydration strategies for races. Just go to their website and click the free hydration plan button in the menu. And you can get 15% off your electrolyte order with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses. In their prescription glasses categories, they have a number of really great uh, innovations that uh, few, if any, other companies offer. Things like uh, an online vision test so you can update your prescription from the comfort of your own home. Also, all of their lenses can be equipped with a blue light blocking coating. They have lots of customizable options. They have home try-on options so you can try up to four different pairs uh, of glasses at home for seven days. And uh, they have frames that are impossible to shake off your face due to their Geeko anti-slip technology. Whether you're interested in prescription glasses or sunglasses or more traditional triathlon uh, equipment like uh, wetsuits, uh, swimskins, uh, buoyancy shorts and so on, you can get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's question, which is from, which is from Jeff in Canada, who writes... Hey Michael, long-time listener, I am an adult-onset middle-of-the-pack swimmer. I am an Uber biker and runner and usually qualify for Kona. My question and my theory is, am I a turkey? Turkeys don't use their wings very much, but run around collecting food all day using their legs. Turkeys have red meat legs and white meat wings. Type 1 muscle fiber predominant leg muscles and type 2 muscle fiber dominant wings, in other words. My theory is that although swim coaches might tell us that we need to do all these drills to become uh, more technically efficient and hydrodynamic in the water, what we really need to do is just to swim for 20 years to get more red myoglobin-rich muscle fibers, type 1 muscle fibers in our arms, if us turkeys wish to stay with the fish. What do you think? All right, thank you, Jeff, for the question. And I love the way that you lay out the theory there with the analogy to the turkeys. Uh, I did not know that about the turkeys, so that's that's really quite fun and quite cool. Let me uh, 
do the episode or the answer to the question in the following way. I'm actually first going to give a few key outtakes or highlights uh, to start off, including both a summary of what I think we can conclude from science, as well as some practical recommendations, because then I'll dive down a little bit of a science hole, uh, 15 to 30 minutes of more detailed underpinnings that not everybody listening might have the patience for. This is actually something that I'm choosing to do based on the survey that I run, ran in January to get some got some really great feedback so trying to do this so if you have further feedback about what you how you like this change then uh, please send it to me by email because uh, as i said when i ran that survey the goal is to improve listening experience Uh, but uh, anyway so let's start with those key points and highlights the high level summary so to say first I would say that, uh, or not I would say, but the science would suggest that in humans, the evidence indicates that upper body muscles, uh, such as the triceps or the deltoid muscles, uh, so in the shoulder, they have lower VO2 max values than leg muscles, such as the uh, vastus lateralis in, in the quad. And also, mitochondrial content seems to be lower. And if you have trained legs, but relatively untrained arms, you might also have other physiological differences in those two muscle groups for example in terms of capillary density cross-sectional area of the muscle fibers so how big the muscle fibers are and potentially a number of other variables that could have an impact on endurance capacity key point number two is that however training status is really really important here and in a few months of focused training you can see significant increases in a number of variables in the upper body musculature We'll see that in particular in one of the studies that we'll look at later. And uh, to add to that, uh, observational studies have shown that trained elite cross-country skiers have been seen to have the same degree of mitochondrial content and capillarization in the arms, in the triceps, as in the vastus lateralis in the quad, so arms and legs, uh, put simply, despite having significantly more type 2 fibers in the arms. So it's not just about the fiber type, but it's about the function of the fiber type. Which leads to point number three. Muscle muscle fibers are functionally very flexible, very malleable. So it's not so much necessarily about changing the fiber type that is important. It's more about changing how they function. And uh, yeah, that is simply make your fast-twitch fibers more effective at uh, oxidative phosphorylation producing energy aerobically put simply by training them that way that is a key practical takeaway train the way that you want the the fibers to perform and key point number four is it does seem like even in very trained athletes arm and shoulder muscles may rely more heavily on carbohydrates and less on fat oxidation than leg muscles and this was true even in the study that showed that that in elite cross-country skiers you might have the same mitochondrial content and everything in the the arms and the legs. But despite that, in terms of the substrate utilization, there is a difference there in the fat oxidation in arms versus legs, with the legs being better at utilizing utilizing fat for energy. Key point number five, getting to the real practical nitty-gritty here. Yes, to improve your swimming, doing enough volume is important. Of course, if you're a pure beginner or somebody with a lot of room to grow at the 
early part of your swimming or triathlon career then the minimal or what you need to do to improve is a lot less than when you have been doing something for years and years and you're approaching that well okay you've come as far as you can come on the current level of training you're doing so doing enough volume is important although we can't say a specific number on what that is because that depends on where you are and your background but also doing the however much volume you're doing doing it right i would say is equally important that means don't just swim mindlessly up and down the pool include intensity and work on technique both are super important factors in swimming do not just plod along but also uh, do not forget about technique even if it's not about drills necessarily but it's about presence and trying to swim with good technique even when you're swimming whether it's endurance swimming or intense swimming try to swim with good technique that said no matter how perfectly you train in terms of including intensity focusing on your technique many triathletes probably are at a point where the best if not the only way to improve their swimming is simply to swim a lot more but if that is you as i said it should still be focused structured swimming and you should be present in your swimming and focus on your technique and not forget about ways of improving your technique either even if the goal of swimming more is to improve the physiology there can be other things that have nothing to do with swimming more that you do to improve your technique such as video analysis or even one-on-one swimming lessons all right so that is a summary a high level summary of the answer to the question now let's move on to some more in-depth science and i have linked to several of the papers or all of the papers that i have relied heavily on in researching this question in the episode description so go ahead and check them out and read them if you're interested they are all very interesting studies most of them are based on cross-country skiing rather than swimming but there is one paper on swimming in there as well Uh, note that all of these papers i could not find as open access but um, if you're not aware you can generally find non-open access papers on sci-hub but uh, please you did not hear that on this podcast you heard it somewhere else Uh, all right let's talk first about a swimming study and this one is by fitz and colleagues in 1989 these researchers took 12 male collegiate swimmers uh, age 19 with a vo2 max of 62 uh, it's quite normal that swimmers have slightly lower VO2 maxes than endurance athletes in, for example, cycling or running. These swimmers were still very good and they had an eight years on average uh, experience in swimming. At first, these athletes just kept doing their normal uh, collegiate program for 10 weeks, which consisted of one and a half hours of swimming per day for five days a week, plus one competition per week. They averaged averaged 4300 meters per day i'm actually not sure if this is per day of active swimming or if it is including the rest days which means that each day they might maybe swam whatever 5000 meters and then they had zero on the rest day either way after these 10 weeks they doubled the training load and started swimming another one and a half hours in the afternoon in addition to the morning session so their volume was now up to on average 9000 meters per day they maintained the intensity in this uh, in the, in this vo- in this period of 10 days of uh, of double doubled volume they took a muscle biopsy from the deltoid so a shoulder muscle after after 10 weeks after the 10 week period and after the 10 day period and they did a number of analyses on uh, on these biopsy samples 
They also took biopsies from four sedentary control subjects and did the same analysis on them to compare. And some of these uh, analyses are maybe not as important for our discussion. So the one that I will highlight here that is important for our discussion is that they measured uh, the activity of uh, citrate synthase, which is the most commonly used marker. It's an enzyme, which is the most commonly used marker for mitochondrial content. Higher mitochondrial content is uh, very strongly correlated with higher citrate synthase, CS, activity. The CS activity in the swimmers was 82% higher than in the control group after those first 10 weeks and 99% higher than the control group after the 10 days of high volume. However, uh, there wasn't a significant, statistically significant increase in the CS activity between that first sample and the second sample between those two time points before and after the, the they really doubled down on their swimming volume. But uh, there was a non-significant increase and compared to the control group reaching basically double the CS activity, so potentially double the mitochondrial content or more or less, is very significant. So no surprise in this study, training leads to significant adaptations at the local muscle level, in this case in the deltoid, which is very active in in swimming. One more thing to mention from this study is that the swimmers uh, here had uh, 70% of type 1 fibers uh, before starting the first 10-week period of training. But the study did not investigate if this percentage changed as a result of that 10-week period or the following 10-day period. Uh, it could be that this 70%, which is a very high number, especially uh, I would say for uh, upper body musculature, is the result of simply having eight years of background in swimming. So putting in hours and hours and miles and miles of swimming for eight years. And that has brought them to this point of having 70% of type 1 fibers. That is pure speculation. Uh, and some of the other studies here will uh, talk more about how muscle fiber distributions, what, what they might look like comparing the lower body musculature and the upper body musculature and how things might change as well through training interventions. But anyway, uh, this study is fairly straightforward. High volume of endurance training leads to specific adaptations that indicate significantly higher mitochondrial content, which of course is a key marker for endurance performance. Mitochondria for those listeners, by the way, not, uh, not aware are the, the energy production plants of the cells. Now let's move on to another study, which has uh, a bit more to it, I think, and uh, a lot of interesting information and tidbits in it. Uh, this one is from uh, Tursis and colleagues in 2005. They did a study where they put six male cross-country skiers with a, an average VO2 max of 76 and more than six years experience for each of them in cross-country skiing through a 20-week training intervention intervention period. And the aim of this intervention was to, quote, markedly increase the roller ski training and more specifically upper body exercise through greater emphasis on double poling. The skiers performed this training three times per week on a roller ski track of varying terrain. The exercise was mainly aerobic, uh, consisting of one to one and a half hours at 75 to 90% of maximum heart rate. But as the skiers were directed to use only double poling, uh, there were also shorter periods during the uphill segments of the track that required greater power. 
the remaining weekly training was two to three sessions with a low intensity with low intensity distance running one to three hours at 60 to 75 percent of maximum heart rate and one high intensity interval running session five times five minutes at 85 to 90 percent of maximum heart rate and three minute rest between intervals in addition all subjects performed two short workouts with general strength training per week so and i should add uh, the, the data was in the study you can look it up i don't have it in front of me but the training volume of these skiers is high i think um something like four or five hundred hours over the course of those 20 weeks so so they are well on, on course for well over 1000 hours per year uh, anyway the researchers took muscle biopsies from the triceps and from the vastus lateralis so the quad let's just call them the arm and the leg uh, before and after the intervention period also before and after the intervention uh, the subjects did a 10,000 meter time trial using roller skis and the double pulling technique so double pulling for those not aware you're basically mostly using your arms and uh, not not that much lower body musculature mostly relying on, on upper body musculature so what did the results show well, all subjects improved their double polling time trial performance with the average time before the intervention being 30 minutes and 6 seconds and the average after being 26 minutes and 59 seconds. So that's an absolutely astonishing improvement in time. It's like essentially imagine going from a 30 minute 10k run pb to 27 minutes it is massive it is a 10 percent improvement it is not necessarily a surprise at least not if they hadn't done much double polling practice at all before i imagine that they had done at least some but they did double down on the double polling technique and uh, so so of course they improved their performance but i think that the gains just in terms of the magnitude of the gains are massive and very surprising in that regard especially considering these are already very highly trained athletes so let's look a little, little bit at the potential mechanisms behind this improvement first when we look at the fiber type distribution in uh, specifically in the arms they the fiber type distribution changed for both type 1 and type 2 fibers with the type 1 fibers at before the intervention being at close to 70 percent of the total muscle fibers uh, and they moved to around 60 percent and the type 2a fibers on the other hand increased from being just above 20 percent before the intervention to being around 35 percent or so in the uh, after the intervention i'm reading from a chart here rather than from a table so that's why i say more or less around 35 or a bit or above 20 rather than specific numbers but uh, pretty much a 10 percentage unit drop of type 1 fibers and a 15 percentage unit increase in type 2 fibers in the total distribution they didn't do this analysis for the leg muscles uh, only for the triceps uh, next uh, what about fiber size and this is measured as the cross-sectional area of muscle fibers which is uh, standard practice uh, and this the cross-sectional area the csa increased in uh, the triceps by 11 and 24 percent respectively in type 1 and type 2 fibers 
and also the number of capillaries around each fiber increased by 30 percent so capillarization which is super important because it provides uh, the oxygen the blood provides the oxygen that the working muscles can then use in the aerobic uh, metabolism to to create uh, create energy create forward propulsion and create endurance performance the cross-sectional areas were similar in the leg muscle to in the arm muscles but in the leg muscles they didn't increase with training like they did in the arm muscles so they were the same or similar before the intervention i should say capillarization in the leg muscles or capillary density was also similar pre-training and it did increase uh, as well after the training intervention but not uh, with the same magnitude as the increase in the arm muscles next uh, we look at the enzyme activity and uh, this study investigated two different enzymes uh, cs or citrate synthase that we already discussed which is a marker for mitochondrial content and uh, three hydroxyacyl coenzyme a which is uh, which is short which the shorthand for which is had so let's just call it had uh, the activity of cs and had in the arms increased by 25% and 15% respectively after the training period. Both CS and HAD activity was higher uh, pre-intervention in the leg muscle compared to in the arm muscles. Uh, and uh, after the training intervention period in the leg muscles, the CS activity increased by 4% compared to 25% in the arm muscles. Uh, but HAD activity remained unchanged in the leg muscles. So with after the training intervention period, uh, the, uh, the enzyme activity in the arm muscles reached the same level as it was in the leg muscles. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to mention one thing uh, a bit before about HAD. HAD is an enzyme that is heavily involved in fat oxidation processes. In the so, so that's why it is an important marker of endurance performance. It is essentially a marker of how strong of a fat oxidation uh, you can have. So here we can see, we can compare and contrast arm and leg muscles in terms of fat oxidation and not just in terms of mitochondrial content. So what can we conclude from these results? Well, first, it's very interesting to see a shift towards type 2 fibers rather than away from them, despite the fact that uh, actually, relatively speaking, this was quite a low-intensity training protocol, especially when it comes to the arm muscles, because they didn't do those intervals as double polling. That was running intervals. Uh, the authors quote uh, Myberg in 2003, who stated that more attention should be paid in, in the future to the percentage and properties of type 2A fibers that have a greater capacity to balance the mechanical and energetic demands of sustained high-intensity exercise than do the slow-twitch fibers. Essentially, what they're saying is that maybe what we want to do is not to think too much about like actually maximizing slow-twitch fibers, but rather we want to have those 2A fibers because they have a great capacity for 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 higher power output but also you can make them behave in a very oxidative and a very efficient aerobic type of way like the slow twitch fibers do uh, they seem to be very malleable so so that's uh, one interesting conclusion from this 
A second, the cross-sectional area increased in both the type 1 and type 2 fibers, and the improvement in performance in the time trial was correlated with the improvement in uh, with the increase in cross-sectional area specifically in the type 2 fibers, but also with the increase in the number of type 2 fibers. So the authors state that the relatively high response in cross-sectional area increase in the arm muscles may be related to the fact that cross-country skiers' arms could be underdeveloped relative to their legs. They reference a study where uh, soccer players did heavy resistance training for 12 weeks and they found that actually these skiers increased their cross-sectional area more than those soccer players did despite the fact that this was quite low intensity or moderate intensity endurance training rather than heavy resistance training. So that was also interesting. Uh, the next thing is the uh, capillary density per muscle fiber increased significantly. And as I said, this is a critical variable uh, for oxygen transport to the muscle cells uh, so that aerobic energy production can take place. Uh, we need to remember that uh, there are multiple factors involved in the system of aerobic energy production. There's uh, delivery of oxygen is really important. So that's why central factors like cardiac output are hugely important but also uh, capillarization which is not a central factor but that is still part of the delivery delivery aspect because it's before we get into the actual muscle fibers where then the mitochondrial content and uh, and enzyme activity and so on become the more important variables to look at and next the cs uh, citrate synthase and had uh, enzymes both increased in the arms to the same level as in the legs after this training intervention period. So uh, compared with and compared with sedentary people, uh, the authors write that the skiers had between three and four times higher values in these enzyme activities, referencing a previous study uh, in both of these uh, enzymes. So that's really really high. And in summary, the authors also conclude, and I quote here, that improvement in upper body performance is achieved by training and is accompanied by an increase in muscle fiber size, enzyme activities, and capillarization of both type 1 and type 2A fibers, together with a bidirectional change in the myosin-heavy chain isoforms towards myosin-heavy chain 2A isoform. Basically, these authors talk about uh, MHC, myosin-heavy chains, when they talk about muscle fibers. So I have just simplified the language a bit and just talk about type fibers, even though uh, that's maybe a bit of a less modern way of speaking of things, because these days in studies, quite often you talk about MHC1 or MHC2A dominant fibers and so on. So, But what they're talking about there is that, that there is a bi bidirectional change uh, in the MHC isoform. So both two X fibers start to become two A fibers and what uh, type one fibers start to become two A fibers. Essentially, the two A fiber, uh, fiber proportion increases at the expense of the other types of fibers. And they also conclude, quote, that this study showed that the improvements of performance was of similar magnitude as some of the morphological and metabolic adaptations. All right, so that's really interesting what happens when you train and focus more specifically on the upper body in a group of athletes that you would think already have a pretty good background in and pretty well-trained upper bodies, given that cross-country skiing is a whole body exercise. But then let's move on to a third study, and I'll try to do this one a little bit quicker. This is by Ertenblad and colleagues in 2018. 
they had 10 elite male cross-country skiers. They were 22 years old with uh, a VO2 max of 69 milliliters per minute per kilogram and 11 years experience on average. Six of these skiers had competed for the Norwegian national team in cross-country skiing. This was not a training intervention study, but uh, rather the researchers simply took biopsies from both the arm and the legs of the participants and ran a host of analyses on these biopsies. And many of these analyses are the exact same that we heard of in that previous study, uh, basically looking at the variables that underpin endurance capacity or some of the, uh, the variables anyway. So first they looked at fiber type distribution and they found a significantly higher proportion of type 1 fibers in the legs, on average 58%, than the arms, which was on average 40%. They do note that the variation between subjects was pretty high, uh, with uh, the type 1 uh, proportion ranging between 34 to 69% in the leg muscles, and between 24 to 57% in the arm muscles. They also note that the two skiers with the highest proportion of type 2A fibers uh, in their arms, uh, with, and they had 70 and 72% respectively, were successful sprint skiers. Uh, next, they uh, discuss and investigate enzyme activities, and they found that the maximal uh, citrate synthase activity of well-trained arm and leg muscles, as is the case with these skiers, was the same in both the arm and the legs, despite the higher uh, type 1 dominance in the legs uh, compared to the arms. Uh, but in contrast, the maximum activity of uh, HAD, so as I mentioned, a key enzyme in fat metabolism and beta oxidation, was 52% higher in the leg compared to the arm muscles. And they write that taken together in these highly trained skiers, there is a close association between fiber type distribution and capacity to oxidize fat with no association between a citrate synthase capacity, so again, a marker for mitochondrial content, and fiber type distribution. Next, they uh, looked at fiber uh, capillarization and fiber size. And first, first, in terms of capillarization, they found that the total number of capillaries per, uh, per fiber and the number of capillaries per fiber area were not different between leg and arm muscles. Uh, so yeah, same uh, capillary density between uh, arm and leg muscles. In terms of fiber size, they found no significant difference in average fiber size between uh, type 1 and type 2A or 2X fibers in the leg muscle. However, in the arm muscle, type 2A fibers were significantly larger than type 1 fibers. Next, they looked at mitochondrial content directly. So they, we already discussed how citrate synthase is a marker for mitochondrial content. But in this study, they actually used the transmission electron microscopy to look directly into the muscle cells and actually calculate, make calculations like count and calculate and measure uh, the actual mitochondrial content and uh, volume in proportion to fiber size and so on based on just looking at the muscles and making that analysis directly. So a direct way of measuring mitochondrial content rather than an indirect, which the citrate synthase activity is. And this is quite rare. It's not something that is commonly done, but it is incredibly great that they did that. And 
they found equal whole muscle mitochondrial content in the legs and arms. So no different there, difference there in the mitochondrial content. And in the discussion, I'm going to quote uh, a little bit from these authors. They write, here we compare equally trained limb muscles from elite cross-country skiers. A key finding was that the mitochondrial volume percentage and citrate synthase activity is equal in legs and arm, despite the presence of a higher proportion of type 2 fibers in the arms. Furthermore, we demonstrate that well-trained type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers can have similar capillarization regardless of whether they are located in arm or leg muscles and that the capillarization is not linked with the muscle fiber type, indicating a divergence between fiber type pattern and aerobic and metabolic capacity. Also, comparable highly trained leg and arm muscles exhibit clear differences in their enzyme-linked ability to oxidize fatty acids, HAD capacity. And combined with previous data on fourfold higher, higher intramyocellular lipid volume contents in leg muscles, this points to a clear limb difference in fat metabolism between leg, the leg and the arm, which cannot be explained by the different fiber type distribution. So just to make a note there on the fat metabolism, what they point out is that previous studies have found that there are greater storages of uh, of lipids, of fats, in the actual muscle cells in the legs compared to the arms, which means that that's another reason. It's not just about the enzyme activity for fat metabolism, but actually having the storage available is another reason that probably leg muscles are a lot better than, than arm muscles at the fat oxidation aspect, even though a lot of the other endurance and metabolic capacities are similar across legs and arms provided that you are highly trained in both like these elite cross-country skiers are i have highlighted one other passage of text here in the discussion and uh, basically what it what the gist of it is is that they're saying that the different fiber types can behave very differently and the behavior of the muscle fibers is closely related to the usage of the muscle fibers and they write, our well-trained cross-country skiers have developed highly oxidative type 2 muscle fibers capable of producing great force and power in order to meet today's need for pronounced endurance in combination with rapid generation of large forces during short contact periods. Basically, they get at the, the malleability of those type 2A fibers. And uh, that is uh, that is one of the big takeaways from this study. Lastly, the last study I'll discuss here, and I'll mention it very briefly, is a review article on differences between arms and legs. And this article mostly includes populations that are not of elite athlete status, like these studies before. Uh, This article is by Helge and colleagues in 2010. And they have a great table in there if you look up the article, which again is linked to, uh, that are showing differences in both VO2 max, like local to the arm and the leg. So what is the VO2 max when using your leg compared to your arm? And also, again, the citrate synthase activity, which is a marker of mitochondrial content. Differences there in subject populations where the VO2 max in all of these studies that were included are between four, somewhere between 40 and 50 or in their 40s and 50s rather than as these previous studies in high-level athletes where the VO2 max was in the 60s and 70s. So, so this review includes studies that are more relevant to most amateur uh, triathletes. And in eight out of the nine studies included that compared VO2 max between the arms and the legs, it was found that the VO2 max is significantly higher in the leg muscles versus the arm muscles. 
And in four out of four studies included that measured the citrate synthase activity, they found that, again, this was significantly higher in the leg versus the arm muscles, indicating higher mitochondrial content in the legs versus the arm. So what does all this tell us? Well, that unless we train the upper body as well as the lower body, we probably will have physiological differences that mean that our upper body endurance performance is lower than lower body endurance performance capacity. And I would guess, so moving on here to the coaching and uh, speculation and recommendation part of this Q&A, I would guess that with the exception of truly elite triathletes, we probably all have differences between arms and legs in this way. We are more well-trained for endurance capacity in our legs than in our arms. So we are more like the subjects in this literature review by Helge and less like the elite skiers in the third study I cited. Uh, Not necessarily in terms of that we have a massive difference. If you are somebody who is a really well-rounded, high-level age group triathlete, then of course your difference between arms and legs is going to be smaller than somebody who maybe comes from a running background in the triathlon but has done very little swimming. But you're still going to have that difference rather than as in the study in elite skiers being able to pretty much eliminate that difference between arm and the leg muscles. So that uh, that leads to the conclusion that, that that we would benefit from swimming more from a pure swimming performance standpoint. Now, whether the time investment is worth it is a completely different question. But uh, but to answer the question of the original question from uh, the that we have here, to answer is is there could more swimming lead to improvements in, for example, mitochondrial content in the upper body musculature that uh, we don't have because it's less well well developed than the lower body musculature? The answer I would argue is probably yes for almost all of us. Uh, but also, uh, it's not just that you need to swim more and get a better physiology for swimming or upper body endurance capacity you also need to focus on technique because that is still hugely hugely important in swimming so important it cannot be underestimated Uh, so so that's another aspect and it's not and with the physiology itself as well this is not just about swimming mindless laps up and down the pool it's about the quality you do it with So swimming more just for the sake of swimming more would probably be slightly beneficial to a point, but to get the full benefit, you need to do that as part of a well-structured swim training uh, program. And you also need to have a constant focus on your technique and improving your technique. That doesn't have to mean doing drills, but it does mean being present in your swimming and focusing on technique, even when you're just swimming, uh, when you're just doing intervals whether it's endurance or hard intervals to paraphrase the great shalane flanagan the american uh, marathon runner distance runner it's about doing the ordinary things extraordinarily well all the time so jeff uh, you may well be a turkey but as you imply this can be changed it because muscle fibers as we have seen today are amazingly malleable but don't put the blinders on and get single-mindedly focused on just doing more swimming volume From a physiological perspective, the best thing you can do for your swimming is probably, yes, to swim more, 
But the second best thing, and this is also hugely important, is to have appropriate doses of intensity in your swimming on a regular basis. So don't do just one of those things. Do both of those things right. Right Again, it comes back to having a good structure of your swim training program. Uh, but also, do not think that it's an either-or proposition. Technique is still crucial. And you you should also think about what you can do to improve your technique I would say, without a doubt, get a video analysis, not just once, but then follow that up later and later again on a fairly regular basis. That is, in my opinion, uh, speaking from experience, the best thing you can do for your technique. And uh, coming back to the turkey comment, as we have seen again, it is about making the muscle fibers change their function, but it isn't necessarily about making them type 1 from type 2 because type 2 fibers can absolutely have the functions that are that are relevant for endurance capacity so so that is something that is quite interesting and that that i found interesting in researching this this question that's it for today's q a if you're interested do go and check out those studies that i linked to in the episode description and keep sending in questions for future q a's let me also know if you have any feedback on the way i did this q a with some key uh, highlights or takeaways at the start of answering the question and then going a bit deeper i would love to hear what you think uh, finally, if you are looking for coaching services or training plans, remember to look at scientifictriathlon.com and what we have to offer there. And thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get a free hydration plan for your next race or for training uh, in just 10 simple questions that you can answer in a few minutes' time. And you can get 15% off your order of electrolytes by using the code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>